For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Well, good morning, church. So we are in the middle of a a series of messages from chapter 8. It's life in the Spirit, and in particular right now, we've been, because of these verses, looking at the subject of suffering, uh, help and suffering. And this is part two of uh, this little uh, series of messages on suffering that comes from this passage. Last week, we kicked it off, and I gave you three gospel applications from these verses, the very first of which was that suffering will confuse and crush us when it's experienced apart from the gospel. When we separate what we're going through in the trials and tribulations of life from what this passage already teaches us, especially in the first half of the chapter, when as we looked at for several weeks, this idea of being accepted by God and not being under God's condemnation because of our union with Jesus Christ. Uh, I gave you a little statement that came from my journal from, from some years ago that the anchor for our soul in the midst of suffering is our identity as sons and daughters, not slaves, under condemnation. And this is that idea that if we suffer, we dare not separate it from the gospel. The second application was that all of creation, including believers, suffer as a result of the fall. Salvation is inevitable, and it's not just us as human beings that suffer. That creation itself experiences futility, frustration, purposelessness. It's that word from Ecclesiastes that is vanity of vanities, uh, heaven, you know, and, and all of that that's there. Third application was our response to suffering must compare it to the glory that God promises to give us. You know, as we suffer and connected to the gospel, we are, you know, a couple of things happen. You know, the idols of our hearts are revealed. The things that we look to in place of Christ for sustenance and power and comfort and security, these idols are revealed when we go through suffering. And at the same time, when we experience suffer and we are connected to the gospel and we allow the Spirit to do His work in us, He draws us to Jesus, and in drawing us to Jesus, we experience more of the glory of our Lord and Savior. 
Well, this morning, uh, in fact, last week, I told you there were six applications, three for last week and three for this week. But, um, you know, this is, you know, in the spirit of the Super Bowl, I'm calling an audible. Uh, and so two sermons are now becoming going to be three because the fourth application is a doozy, right? And so I just decided we're going we're gonna to just deal with the fourth application this morning. And it, it comes from verse 20, and you need to strap in because it really gets to uh, one of the biggest topics, one of the biggest questions, and that is God and suffering and how, you know, his involvement in our suffering. And so verse 20 says, for the creation was subjected to futility, um, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Now, if you have your pen, underline that, that phrase, who sub, but because of him who subjected it. Because of him. Why does creation have futility and frustration and emptiness, chaos, purposelessness? It's an enigma to us because he purposed it this way. He's the one who subjected it. God is sovereign over all suffering. And through this suffering, he brings about his glorious plan. And that statement, that application, this truth that is alluded to here in verse 20, in which we see throughout this passage and throughout the scriptures, it's a stumbling block for people, for many people. Uh, my son is a, a student at UNC in Chapel Hill. And he's in mourning this morning because of the Duke game last night. Um, I had to repent a little bit last night watching that game. But anyway, um, his freshman year, he had a professor who uh, I've alluded to before or mentioned before. Uh, he's probably a leading uh, theologian, we'll say, for the modern atheist and agnostic movement, a man by the name of Bart Ehrman. Uh, Bart Ehrman... Uh, his testimony is a unique one. He was raised in a church very much like ours, maybe a little more conservative evangelical than our church is, and we're pretty conservative, right? Uh, when he graduated from high school, uh, he didn't take scholarships to state universities. Instead, he went to the place where real Christians go for college, and that was Moody Bible Institute. And we have some Moody grads in here, right? Uh, he loved his time at Moody Bible, and he, uh, got, uh, he found out he had an affinity for Greek, and which the New Testament was written in, and he loved studying it. And so when he finished, he went to a, a college nearby that, as he said, wasn't quite as filled with real Christians as Moody, but it was still pretty good, Wheaton College. And he went to Wheaton, and we have some Wheaton grads here, right? And whatnot. And, uh, but that's, this is his testimony, right? So this gives you an idea where he was coming from. I mean, this guy was staunch, rock solid, right? Um, and he, at, at Wheaton, he really just enjoyed studying the scriptures and the manuscripts of the scripture. And so his professor said, if you really want to become a professor and teach and, and delve into the Bible and the origins of the Bible, you, you need to go to Princeton and study under Dr. Bruce Metzger. And Dr. Bruce Metzger was a fine Christian evangelical man, and he's considered just within scholarship and academic circles to this day, even though he's passed away, as a leading authority on how we get, got our New Testament. But unfortunately at Princeton, he didn't just take classes from Dr. Bruce Metzger. And uh, while there, this, uh, he was introduced to things, and uh, when he graduated, he was no longer the conservative Christian. He would say he was more of a liberal Christian. 
And this proceeded for many years. In fact, he got married, had kids, led his wife to Christ, his children to Christ. But one day he was taught, he was asked to teach a class in the university that he was at on suffering. And by the end of that class, what he taught and what he was seeing, he essentially walked away from the faith because of the suffering that is in our world. And he says, how with children dying every three seconds from starvation, how can we even think that there is a good God in control of everything? If there's a God at all, he doesn't care a bit about this planet. And this has been the the experience of many people as they look at their suffering and they wonder how on earth could this happen if there's a God, and especially here I am, I'm a Christian and I'm the one suffering. It's not like it's some scumbag over here deserves it, right? It's me, one of the children of God who is suffering. And, and that throws people into a tailspin and we question and begin to accuse God about our suffering. And here's the thing. God does not ask us as Christians to defend him on this. He doesn't ask us to explain it away so that we let him off the hook. He doesn't ask us to apologize for it. In fact, God is completely unapologetic about this. He's clear. This passage is clear. Look at this text for a minute. In this passage, who subjects nature and creation to futility? Who does it? Exactly. God. He's unapologetic about this. Why does he do it? And the answer is three words. God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Now, for some of us here this morning, that concept might be new. Uh, You've been coming to our church, you've come from different heritages and backgrounds, and the sovereignty of God maybe not has been stressed as much. And for many of you, you've been in our church for a while, you know this is an important aspect of what we believe as a Reformed Evangelical Presbyterian Church. We mean, we believe this. But we we need to kind of do maybe a refresher this morning. For some of you, it'll be new. Others of you, it's a refresher. What do we mean when we say that God is sovereign, okay? And, and we're going to do a quick, very quick survey. I want to give you just five simple statements that hopefully will at least just, you know, give you something to work with, right? It, 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 I mean, there's textbooks written on this, so we, we can't go that deep this morning. But five simple statements, right? The first one is this. By sovereign, what we mean is that God owns everything in the universe and he rules over his creation. He owns it all and he rules over it all, right? So 1 Chronicles chapter 29, verse 11 and 12 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Again, all that is in the heaven and earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are as exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. God rules over the entire creation, the entire universe, because it all belongs to him. Second simple principle, God's sovereignty is a result of who he is. God's sovereignty is a result of who he is. A few moments ago, we sang a wonderful song. And that song had a refrain that said, we crown you, we crown you, Lord of all. 
in, in one sense that that's absolutely legitimate because it's expressing a, a, a sentiment of our heart that we are acknowledging your kingship. But if you look at those words literally, it almost implies that God is the king because you know somehow we've gotten elected together and we've elected him or decided him and now we're giving you the crown. Kind of like what happens in certain countries where their form of government, the king or the queen is elected by the people. Church, God is not sovereign because we make him sovereign. God is sovereign because of who he is. So if you think about who God is, God is omnipresent, which means he is everywhere in the universe and all of creation all at the same time. So everything that is happening on earth right now, everything that happens in your life is absolutely visible to him. There are no secrets from God. He sees it all. He's also omniscient, or excuse me, omnipotent. And omnipotent means that he is all powerful. And so in relation to this, he has the power and the ability to do everything that he wills and that he plans. And he's omniscient, which means that he is all knowing. He knows everything from beginning to the end. Many years back, I gave you an analogy. Uh, we admit my son, uh, my oldest son loves snow globes. And I liken the entire universe, you take the entire universe, right? Um, the, all the experience of humanity, all the knowledge of humanity, everything that has ever happened, will ever possibly happen, has happened, will happen, the, all of the, the, everything. I mean, just think of everything, right? Put that in a snow globe. Imagine that being in a snow globe, right? And God is the one who's holding that snow globe. And he can look at it and he can turn it. it that, that globe is completely within his hand. He has that kind of perspective. He can turn it upside down. He can shake. I mean, everything. This is how omniscient, what it means for God to be omniscient, to be sovereign. So as a result, here's the thing. Nothing catches him by surprise. Nothing happens in our lives that he did not first see. Nothing happens in this world that makes God say, Oh boy, Jesus, oh, Jesus on the right hand, Jesus, <laughs> that was a surprise. Didn't see that one coming, right? That never happens. That never, absolutely never happens, right? So God is sovereign. Third principle, there are no accidents or coincidences that just happen to us by chance, if you want to be theologically correct, we do not believe in luck. Okay? There is no such thing as a coincidence. Things don't just happen to us. Absolutely not. The littlest things in the world God is in control of. He says in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, we may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. In every gambling casino, gambling den across the world, as guys are playing uh, dice and they're throwing those dice, whatever shows up on those dice is because God is sovereign and in control of everything. Okay? It, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? In other words, think of the most insignificant 
Uh, apparently they weren't part of the Sierra Club. But anyway, uh, think of the most insignificant type of you know, things that are out there, the least expensive, a penny. Two sparrows for a penny you could buy and sacrifice and use. And he says, not one of them, not one sparrow in the deepest jungles, in the darkest forest that falls dead, that does not happen apart from your father. So you take the most insignificant animal or thing or whatever in creation and God is sovereign over it. And of course, the implication from lesser to greater is that if he is that sovereign over something as irrelevant as the throwing of a dice or the falling dead of a sparrow, how much more sovereign and aware is he of what you are going through? In fact, Jesus will say he even knows the number of the hairs on your head, which for some of you is no big deal, but for some of us it is, right? That's how in tune God is, all right? Fourth principle, absolutely nothing in this universe can stop God from fulfilling his divine plan. And if you've watched Good Omens on Amazon, we're talking about his ineffable plan here. And some of you just don't absolutely have no idea what I'm talking about. But if you're a fan of British television programs, it's worth your time. Absolutely nothing in this universe can thwart God from fulfilling his divine. I love the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the things I have done in the past, for I alone am God. I am God, and there is none like me. Only I can tell you the future before it even happens. Everything I plan will come to pass. Read these last words with me. For I do whatever I wish. This is why this doctrine is so humbling to Christians and to everyone. Okay? Uh, in a couple of weeks, assuming I don't stretch suffering out into like eight more messages, but um, in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to the passage in Romans 8 that talks about predestination, Right? which is another way of talking about God's sovereignty. And I have one message planned for that, but based off how suffering has gone, we may be there for 10 weeks. I don't know, but uh, no, I'm not going to do that to you. But that is just another way of talking about God's sovereignty, but in a different realm, and that's our salvation. You see, God is sovereign over everything that happens in this universe, including the fact that you have come into the family of God and Satan cannot thwart that plan. And I got news for you. You can't thwart God's plan for your life. And that's the whole basis for why we know we can never be snatched out of his hand. We can never be removed from his family, not because we are so great and so good. It's because he is sovereign and he's powerful. and He's in control and nobody can stop him from fulfilling his plans. Fifth principle, it's an important one. In light of all of this and his sovereignty and who he is and who we are, we are not given the latitude to pass judgment on him for what he does and what he permits to happen. We are not given the latitude as his children to pass judgment on God for what happens to us. Uh, again, going back to the book of Isaiah, 
The prophet, right, or God actually says through the prophet, what sorrow awaits those who argue with their creator? Does a clay pot argue with its maker? Does the clay dispute with the one who shapes it, saying, stop, you're doing it wrong? Does the pot exclaim, how clumsy can you be? Think about the absurdity of that. You know, and here's, here's the picture that God is giving us, okay? Imagine a room, okay? Here's a potter doing his work. Here are pots that he has created. And you look at that picture, where do you see yourself in that picture? Who are you? Now, most people will say, well, I'm the, I'm the potter, right? You know, and I do. No, we're the pots. <laughs> He's the potter. He's the creator. And we belong to him. And he works in our lives. And as he works in our lives, that even includes suffering. And he says, hey, listen, it's perfectly okay to ask why. Jesus asked why on the cross. It's okay to ask for understanding. It's okay to cry out in agony to God. It's not okay to blame him and accuse him and rail against him. Because when we do that, we're doubting his love for us and his goodness towards us. So what are the implications of sovereignty relative to our suffering? It means, first of all, that God controls all aspects of our suffering. He's in control of it. He says in Exodus chapter 4, verse 11, Then the Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? Who decides whether people speak or do not speak, hear or do not hear, see or do not see? Is it not I, the Lord? Think about the implications of that. Deuteronomy 32, he says, Look now, I myself am he. There's no other God but me. I am the one who kills and gives life. I am the one who wounds and heals. No one can be rescued from my powerful hand. In the story of Job, you know the story, probably most of you. Satan asked for permission to uh, you know, put Job to the test, bring suffering into his life. It's very, a very enlightening story, Right? And Satan could not bring suffering into Job's life without God permitting it. And God says, you may do so, but you may not kill him. And so Job goes through horrendous suffering. And early on in his suffering, his wife comes to him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? They apparently needed marital counseling, I'm, I'm thinking there, right? And this is what Job replies. He says, you talk like a foolish woman. They definitely needed wedding marital counseling. <laughs> Should we accept only good things from the hand of God and never anything bad? Boy, that's, uh, that's, that's profound. He would say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So this means that the nature of our suffering, the timing of our suffering, the extent of our suffering, who suffers and when they suffer and who doesn't suffer and when they don't suffer. All of this is under his sovereign control. And to not accept this truth is to put your soul in peril. 
But to accept that God is sovereign, even over our suffering and pain, there's great comfort and strength to be found here. You know, John Piper, in his book, The Pleasures of God, relates and gives a great testimony to why this is true. Let me read a little passage to you. He says, on December 16th, 1974, God did not save my mother's life. She was riding with my father on a touring bus heading toward Bethlehem in Israel. A van with lumber tied on the roof swerved out of its lane and hit the bus head on. The lumber came through the windows and killed my mother instantly. The death certificate said, lacerated medulla oblongata. When we saw her body 10 days later after the funeral home did the best it could, my sister fainted. We left my father to weep alone over the coffin for a long time, and then I went in and shut it for the last time. We used pictures at the visitation. What was my comfort in those days? There were many. I had her for 28 years as the best mother imaginable. She had known my wife and one of my four children. She was now in heaven with Jesus. Her life was rich with good deeds, and its good effects are lasting long after she is gone. And underneath all these comforts, supporting all my unanswered questions and calming my heart, there is the confidence that God is in control and, and this is the important part, God is good. Does I take no comfort from the prospect that God cannot control the flight of a 4 by 4 beam? For me, there is no consolation in haphazardness nor in giving Satan the upper hand. As I knelt by my bed and wept, having received the dreaded phone call from my brother-in-law, I never doubted that God was sovereign over this accident and that God was good. I do not need to explain everything. That he reigns and that he loves is enough for now. See, he... he accepts this truth. And in a time of suffering, it ends up comforting the soul rather than throwing one into a downward spiral. And as God controls the suffering as for us as individuals, this is also true for us as a corporate body, as a church. Churches go through times of real suffering. And sometimes this is the consequence of sin within the church. The church isn't functioning in a healthy manner. And so the suffering that God brings to that church is the good discipline of God. We see this, for example, in the book of Revelation with the churches in Revelation, the church at Ephesus. He commends them. He says, you're doing all kinds of wonderful, good things. You are strong in the truth, proclaiming the truth and resisting doctrinal error. And they were church, uh, church planting churches. They planted churches all around their region. They were a primary church for centuries in the history of the church. And yet there was sin in their church. And Jesus says, because I love you, I'm calling this out so that you can be the church I want you to be. Sometimes the suffering of churches happens because there's sin in the church. You know, sometimes it happens because the church is doing God's work. And when a church does the work of God, that church now has a bullseye on its back from the evil one. Listen, Satan does not bother with churches that deny Jesus Christ and the, the miracles of the Bible and the truth of the Bible. 
He does not bother with churches that are nothing more than social clubs that cozy up to false religion. He goes after churches that are intent on sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with the lost in their community and around the world. He goes after churches that stand for truth, but do so winsomely and with grace. He he, he goes after churches where the gospel is at the center of that church. Understand this, and that brings suffering. So it can be because there's sin in the church. It can be because the church is actually on doing what is right for God. And, you know, and sometimes it's both. You see this in the book of Acts, right? The church was going gangbusters, but they had sin in their church. And so what did God do? He brought suffering very visibly before the presence of that church. You see it in the book of Joshua with the nation of Israel. They're going gangbusters for God, but because part of their nation, just one family, sinned against God in an egregious way, God brought sorrow and defeat and loss to the whole nation, to the corporate body because of that sin. So God, just as he does it for us as individuals, he does this for his bride. And we need to understand that. This truth of God's sovereignty over our suffering is yet another reason why we must not separate our suffering from the gospel and the truth of the gospel. If we don't view God as all good and that he intends to bring good out of our suffering, the truth that God is sovereign over it all actually becomes incredibly confusing. It becomes the basis at best for cynicism and fatalism and spiritual depression. I lived this for a long, long, long time. That's at best when you separate suffering from the gospel. You believe God is sovereign, but if you separate suffering from the gospel, this truth of who God is will not comfort, it will confuse you. At worst, you'll walk away from the faith like Dr. Ehrman. When you separate suffering from the fact that God is good, if you separate it, And if you don't view God as all loving towards you, that he's not punishing or retaliating against you and your sin through suffering, then this truth can become the basis for anger and disillusionment from God. I've talked with Christians who are going through difficulty and suffering, and they view it as God punishing them, pouring his wrath out on them because they're not the Christian they should be. You're forgetting chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If in the midst of your suffering, you hear condemnation, you hear shame for who you are as a person, and you hear wrath, you're hearing your enemy, not God. That's what's happening. Recognize that. It's through suffering, actually, that we begin to understand how God, how good God is and how much he loves us. That may seem oxymoronic, but it's true. And let, let, me, let me give you an illustration by way of analogy to hope you'll help, hopefully will help you. You know, when I was a child, I had a wonderful mom and dad. 
my earliest memories, I knew my dad loved me. And he showed it to me in a number of ways. As a child, it would be sneaking me glasses of Coke when my mom wasn't looking. (laughs) And he was a deacon in our church, and I would get up early and go in with him to church for his work, and he would always swing by Dunkin' Donuts. It was our secret, or Krispy Kreme, and we always got a donut on Sunday morning. That was our treat for the week, right? Because we didn't have a lot of money. And, and it just progressed, you know, and as I grew up, I, more, you know, I understood more, and I was more convinced that my dad loved me. And then when I became a teenager, and young, maybe not even quite a teenager, and I had to start working for things, and I worked I, actually from probably the time I was 10 or 11, and I even had, you know, just work for money because he needed it. And, and that hard work and having to sacrifice, I, I appreciated more what my dad was doing for me through his work. And, and I saw in his job and in all the labor and effort that he did and how he would come home tired at night, that was just a sign of how much my dad loved me. You know, and that progressed, not probably for you, it, it progressed as you got older and you lived more of life, you began to realize, wow, I got kids now. Boy, you sure do redefine your parents once you have kids, don't you? You know, you look at them differently once you're the one in the hot seat. Grandparents take comfort. If you're near your kids right now, just go, yeah, see, I told you, right? You know, but for me, there was a pivotal moment. I think maybe the high water mark of this, what I'm getting at. It happened to me when I was taking a hiatus from being a pastor. I did this for several years, and I worked in the corporation. I worked up the corporate ladder. I, I reported it to the CIO in this particular corporation, though the CIO was, uh, he was very powerful, and, and he was a bully. He was just a bully. And I remember one day I was in his office, and I was in a meeting with a bunch of other people, and on this day, he turned his sights on me, and he just abused me verbally, you know, emotionally. Uh, he, it was almost physical. It was humiliating. It was degrading. And listen, I was raised in a part of Jacksonville where if you, as a kid and a teenager coming up, if you talk smack, if you diss somebody, okay, we're punching. And if you didn't respond to a bully like that, then your life was hell. So you, you had no choice. This is how you had to respond to a bully. And I'm going to tell you that day, I was sitting there in, my, in, in that, at that table and I was shaking. I'm, I'm six foot six. I'm 280 pounds. He's a nitwit runt. I could drop kick him out the window. Right? And I'm going to tell you something. I wanted to. And I left that office and I went back to that meeting. I went back to my office and I closed the door and I was literally trembling with rage. I was close to crying. I was so, because I wanted to retaliate either, if not physically, at least with my mouth, because I can do that pretty good too when you're in the flesh. Do you know why I didn't? That whole time I took it, I didn't want to take it, was because I knew I had two children at home who needed food and clothes. I had a wife who needed a roof over her head. I needed gasoline for their car. And I could not afford to indulge what I wanted to do because of how much I love my family. And so here I am in my office and I'm shaking and I cry out to God for help. And he cascades my mind with memories of when I used to travel with my dad. And I remember one, several times he would leave a meeting with his boss, who was apparently very similar to this one. 
And he would get in the car and I would see him shaking. And he was a big, tough man. And I would hear later him talking to my mom about what that man had said to him or done to him. When I was in middle school and I got to be a smart aleck like they do, and teenagers, one day I mouthed off to him. And I actually said to him, what kind of man would take that abuse from somebody else? How can you let him talk to you and do you that way? And I lost a little bit of respect for my dad that day. And I remember my dad saying, son, one day you will understand. And in that office that time, when I now am an adult, God brought those memories back to my mind and all of my rage went away because I realized how much my dad loved me by what he had been putting up with for me. So when I left work that day, I swung by his house and walked in and gave him the biggest hug. By this time, he's diminished in health, so I was picked him up, I think, literally up off the ground, and I whispered in his ear, Daddy, I finally understand. What's the point of that? We, we quote a verse, right? Quote it with me, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. The love of God is something that we delight in, but for many of us, it's just kind of a nebulous concept. Or maybe we have an understanding of it, but our understanding of it is very much a childish understanding, just like our understanding of our parents' love for us when we're children is very childish. See, we cannot understand the love of God without suffering. We can't understand the goodness of God without suffering. In the Garden of Gethsemane, there's this scene where Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross. And he says, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. We understand the suffering that Jesus was going through internally at the prospects of the cross he went on a little further and he bows to his face to the ground praying, my father, if it's possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not my will to be done. And we know how this story ends, right? That Jesus goes to the cross and he suffers for us. His love for us is to such an extent that he suffered all the wrath of God it was poured out upon him, and he endured it. Why? Because of his love. Our heavenly Father, the Holy Spirit, turned their back on the third person of the Trinity because he's suffering for our sin. What suffering did the Father go through to give us his Son, who he loves eternally? How do we understand that kind of love? You can't understand it unless in some way, to some degree, you walk that same road that it costs them to love us like this. The suffering that God went through, that Christ went through, out of love for us, when we suffer under God's good hand, Church, what he's doing is 
in part helping us to understand actually how much he loves us, how much Christ loved us. If our little suffering, as horrible as it is, think about, compare it to the great suffering he went through. And why did he do that? Because of his love for us. And so we look at it and we understand why this verse, verse 20, ends with the word hope. There is good purpose behind the suffering that we experience. And just as God redeemed the suffering that Jesus went through on the cross and in life for us, God redeems our suffering. Why? Because he's good and he loves us. And it's through suffering that we experience the glory of the Lord, that we better understand the depth, the eternality of God's love to us. And as hard as it may be at the time to experience it, through that suffering, God is opening our eyes and preparing us for a greater glory and opening our eyes to the reality of who he is and how he thinks of us. Not as enemies, not as people worthy of condemnation, but as precious sons and daughters of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. It's hard. We need grace for this. Although we understand that even as parents, those of us who are parents, sometimes pain is brought into our own children's lives and we bring that pain because we love them and we want what is good for them. But when we are the ones on the receiving end of pain, it can be hard to remember this gospel truth. Lord, would you open our eyes and hearts to you May you mature us in such a way that we see in our suffering your good hand at work. And when we can't see it, would you give us the faith to believe that in time we will see it as we trust in you. And Lord Jesus, I I pray specifically this morning for the people in this church who I know are suffering. We have some in Jacksonville who've been suffering and the Honigmans, and Lord, thank you for what you're doing in their lives. We have others, Lord, who are here that they're, they're dealing with deep grief and pain. And others who are, are facing extreme trials. And Lord, even as a church as a whole, Lord, we, we're facing a difficult time. But we know, Lord, that you are sovereign. And you are good. And you love us. So help us to rest in that truth, to surrender ourselves to you and allow you to do your sanctifying work in our lives and in our church. Give us the eyes that we need to see, the hearts that we need to respond. In your name we pray these things, Jesus. Amen.